The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. We are continuing our series through the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, we have come to chapter 12, where the Lord is the strength and the song of the people. And so I want us to read God's word. So will you open it with me, um, whether that's in your Bible or on your uh, tablet? But I'll give you a moment to get there and we will read God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Will you say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord. For he has done glorious. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy. O inhabitants of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the very words of God. Amen. Amen. Beloved, our nation is sick. And our nation has been sick for a very long time. We have been preoccupied with nurturing the symptoms while we have yet to look at trying to destroy the disease. Our lack of awareness and indifference for a true cure means that we have self-medicated all of this time. Much like the children of Israel, their self-medication was to rebel against God because they didn't trust in him. To indulge in forms of idolatry because they didn't believe in them. To continue to perform acts of injustice or to be complicit in them because they did not care about the community or the people that were hurting and broken around them. It is here in chapter, it is where we see in chapter 6 of Isaiah that the prophet had came to the realization of his sickness and his depravity. While being... In the presence of a holy God, he came to the realization that he needed God the most. But not only that, but he's seen the sickness and depravity in his own community that plagued all of them. Blinded in their need for their need for salvation. In fact, it was difficult from them to for them to understand or even fathom what it would look like to have a new Jerusalem. What did a new Jerusalem mean when a prophet was speaking judgment? What did a new Jerusalem mean when a prophet did not necessarily seem to speak to the hope that they desired or that they wanted? 
oh, a short-term memory is one that Israel had. Because I asked, I would ask an Israelite at that time in ancient Near East, and I would ask you right now, do you recognize your need for salvation? Do you recognize that you are one that is sick and depraved? That all of us are struggling each and every day trying to live in a chaotic world? Do we recognize that? Because it's impossible to imagine a hope to come when we do not acknowledge our need for salvation. It is impossible for us to acknowledge a hope to come when we do not recognize our need for salvation. I want to unpack that thought this morning. I want to unpack that because I think and I believe when we recognize our deep awareness for salvation, then we will be far more active and far more, far more strong in our approach when we think about what it means to care radically about our neighbor, radically in loving Christ. That's our vision. And that's what we have committed ourselves to, beloved. I'm not saying anything that's not in the Bible. I want to make sure as we look at our passage this morning that you understand that the children of Israel contextually are singing a new song that echoes Exodus 15. When you read, take time to read Exodus 15 in its entirety, but it is right after they have been delivered out of the bondage of Egypt. And they sing to the Lord because they have been delivered from Egypt. But yet in this one here, they sing praises for the Lord because it is Emmanuel who will come. Their coming king will arrive and deliver them from their enemies. Deliver them from kings that were trifling and rule. I'm talking about a people who, when you look at chapter 11, it tells us as You see this whole entire uh, uh, process being prophecy being played out in this first section of the first 39 chapters of this book. Chapters 1 through 12 is unpacking judgment and hope for rebellion, idolatry and injustice. Rebellion, idolatry and injustice. We see this all playing all the way out. How do we see it? Because what Isaiah is consistently saying is that you are missing what God is doing. And I've seen him near to me and he purified me, not because of my doings, because of my reckon, but because of my reckon, my recognition for my need for a holy God to save me. So this chapter 12 ends a section that we've been trying to unpack all of this time. And you may think over the last couple of weeks how convenient we have been talking about justice. But I believe it was providential because if you were just to go back and read chapters 1 through 11, you will see that the people of Israel were not good people. They were not holy people. They were not acting as they were supposed to be, which is a holy nation. They were only holy because God proclaimed them holy, not because of the acts that they were doing with holy. In fact, they had a king, and we'll get to that, uh, who Ahaz, who definitely once had the miracle God, miracle working powers of God working alongside of him, but he forsake all things because he wanted to trust in Assyria more than he wanted to trust in God. What are we trusting in? 
Who do we believe outside of God who will be our proclamation? And see, I want to break this down in just three ways that God gives us through his salvation comfort. God gives us through his salvation confidence. And God, through his salvation, allows us to proclaim a good news. He allows us to proclaim the only good news that will bring salvation that is promised to God's people. Let me pray for us before we dive all the way into God's word. Father, we love you. We thank you so much that you continuously remind us that you are our hope, our light, and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? Whom shall we be afraid? Oh, God, we trust in you because you are so strong. You are so real that we can taste you and feel you. And I pray that even though that I may be preaching to people through a camera, but they feel your presence in every address, every household, on every couch, in every bedroom. I pray that they sense and feel the power, the presence, and the protection of you, O Lord. Use me as an empty vessel to preach your word. Allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Our rock and our redeemer. All God's people say together. Amen. Our first point is God's salvation is comforting. We find comfort in God through his salvation. Look at verse 1. It's a continuation from chapter 11 where you see a people who are scattered. But as they are scattered, God begins to reconcile, unite Bring them together. You see this in, cha- in chapter 11, verse 13. The jealousy of Ephraim uh, 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 shall, shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. The people of God, once divided, jealous of one another, no longer jealous no longer harassing one another, no longer cutting each other off. I think that we can relate to this today. I think there are some churches and some people, some Christians. I'm not even talking about everyone outside of the church that we are divided. All of us are reading different outlets and listening to so many different podcasts. And we hear how many different people have perspectives on the chaos that we're experiencing today from the virus to the economy, to those that are marching and protesting in the streets, to the issues that we have with looting, to the problems that we have with black and brown bodies in the streets. There are so many people who have opinions and thoughts, etc., and yet we cannot find a common ground. Some people just say, won't we just preach the Bible? Some people say it is a social justice. I don't care what we say. All I know is that if the body of God of Christ is not united and if we continue to be scattered, we will not, will not stand under a holy God and thrive. We will continue to be sick and depraved. Do you recognize your need for salvation? As a church, universally, do we recognize our need for salvation? I think the prophet is trying to say this because he's associating this when he says you will say on that day. The prophetic command here is that you will, that it will happen, that it will happen. And they will praise and how and they will proclaim a true king. I like that because sometimes we think to ourselves casually that we will do it. But the prophetic command is not necessarily this happens casually because our hearts don't desire it. Our minds don't want it. 
It's hard when we're consistently watching all of the media outlets and our hearts are gravitating towards certain things and we want our own protection. We want our own comfort. Now, some of us, because we're in phase three, have been able to escape all of this to hide in beaches and mountains and lake houses. But how long will we hide from the reality of what's going on in our society and recognize that we all need salvation? Do you see me? Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what, what the Bible is saying? That this salvation is not comforting in a lake house. It's not comforting on the beach. It's not comforting in the mountains. It's not comforting in some vacation. It's comfort in the salvation that God provides. And you may read this and say, oh, how can we be comforted when God is angry? It's interesting because our passage shows an appreciation for God's anger or wrath that brings comfort. We recognize this because Exodus 12 and 12 through 13 says this, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, referring to the Passover. And I will strike all of the firstborn of the, uh, in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all, uh, don't ever skip over man and beast. That, that, that is very interesting. But he says, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, my God, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. I don't know when God will strike our world and our land. But I can promise you and assure you what our text is saying this morning when God's judgment turns away from the people which brought them comfort is not because they simply did not exceed or experience his anger. It is because God's anger was relented to benefit them so that they may then experience his salvation through comfort. Are you tracking with me this morning? His comfort, again, does not come because he's not angry. Many of you may struggle with how can a good God be angry or, or why won't this angry God bring wrath on our current injustice and on our current situations in our society today. God's anger and or wrath is a real indignation. His expressed pain this is what it is. It is his expressed pain regarding sin, his revulsion toward evil and all that opposes him. Absolutely everything. His displeasure at, at this is the fact that he is, he is venting through his anger. In, an, in, a, in a very human way, he has portrayed his anger because anger here literally means nausea. You ever see your mama or your daddy, when they get mad at you, their nostrils begin to flare. And when you know when mom and daddy's nostrils begin to flare, what happens as a child, kids, I hope you're still listening, this is what you say. What? And then they look at you, you know what you did. See, what, 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 when God's nostrils begin to flare, what we don't necessarily understand what we are, what we have done, but it, it's not God's nostrils flaring because he wants to kill you and destroy you. It is because God's displeasure is venting through the fact that he has a righteous indignation. 
It's not his anthropomorphic nostrils are not flaring because he is sinful. He is not like human beings. Our nostrils flare and we are in range with anger and it's oftentimes sinful. But he is different. He is without sin. And it's also very important to understand and note that God does not take pleasure in expressing his anger. We know this from, from, from the book of Lamentations. In fact, he grieves the fact that he has to be angry. He does not enjoy this. Remember when your parent would use the infamous statement before a spanking? This is going to hurt me more than it hurt you. Now, that was a lie. Because every whooping I got, I'm telling you, I don't think my mother felt any pain. But I'm using a joke to make this application, to make this point. It is, it is vital for us to understand that God is not erratic and is filled with pointless rage. But yet, here is why we live with humility towards knowing God. Because his grace and his mercy is the very thing that comforts us when his anger flares. His grace and his mercy is the very thing that comforts us when his anger flares. Read Psalm 51. When, God, when, 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 when David writes this psalm, you can tie it right to Samuel where he says, I have sinned before God and God alone. Therefore, God, I, I want you to wash me from my iniquities according to your what? Tender mercies. Created me. A clean heart. Renewing me a right spirit. He knows that only God can do this. He knows that only God can provide the salvation that's necessary and comforting him. And I'm certain that God's displeasure with our turmoil today is real. He's not looking down smiling on the issues that we have today. And he's not looking down smiling on the divisions and the schisms we have in our churches today. He's not looking down smiling on those that are theologically haughty. He's not looking down smiling on those that are outright arrogant. God relenting anger should comfort and humble God's people. Because we always need to know that we are sin. I mean that we are sick and depraved individuals. Our next point helps us to see this a little bit more. That God's salvation in verses 2 uh, uh, through three. God's salvation is our confidence. God's salvation is our confidence. We see that when in this point here that God does not limit his saving work. Oftentimes we only think about it as personal salvation. Now, historically, I think that this happens because of the Great Awakening, where a lot of people only looked at personal salvation as the way in which we live our lives in a Western society. It's difficult for us to think about communal sanctification or a community that is saved. Uh, uh, this is why we use covenant language. But, but I want you to understand what is happening here, that God saving is the analogy or salvation here is the, the analogy or the imagery of a safe place of a refuge, of a fortress. Have you ever had to run from a situation to a shelter? Maybe a women's shelter because you were running from an abusive household. Maybe you had to run to refuge because someone was chasing or threatening your life. Maybe you had to run to your parents because you felt fearful 
in a particular situation, no matter what it was. God is saying that I am the most steadfast refuge and fortress more than a Fort Knox, more than wherever the government officials go whenever we have a terrorist, terrorist attack. It, it, there is nothing like the fortress that God provides for salvation. And he describes it in this bracket, through these brackets of when you, at the beginning, he says, God is my salvation of verse two. And at the end of verse two, he said, God is my, he said, he is my salvation. But in the middle of it, we see trust. I will not be afraid. My strength and my song. This salvation is a package deal. Our trust in God builds our confidence in him alone. Our confidence in him alone. How do we know this? Because Ahaz gives us a great example. What did he do? One who trusted the Assyrian military because of the enemies that they had more than he trusted in the Lord. Even though the Lord showed himself strong to them, he wanted to make sure that he could control what would happen and his confidence would be in a military force as opposed to the very one who created absolutely everything. I want you to think about that. Nor should we be afraid because God, the one that we trust, will not fail us. I'm certain of this. I'm certain of this because if we are afraid of what we see going on on the media, what happens a lot of times, we don't want to engage in the racial issues. Uh, what we want to do is we want to categorize them and say that, that if we just focus on the biblical issues, then all of a sudden, in a miraculous way, all of the social issues would just disappear. No, that is turning a blind eye to the people that are hurting and broken in our society. Our confidence is not in ignoring our confidence is, is making sure that we proclaim that God makes sure that we will have a safe place. And I'm going to proclaim it and tell people who need to know about it because this is what happens in our society oftentimes as we ignore the issues around us. It's the same thing with the political tension and the climate that we have right now. That high level of anxiety of what you may be figuring, trying to figure out what's going on, what's going to happen in November. No matter where you are on the political spectrum, we know that we can be far more divided if we put our confidence in politics. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm definitely not saying that we should not be politically aware and be ignorant and just read our Bibles. I'm saying if you understand kings that that did not lead well. If you understand people in the Bible that led people astray, then I want you to think about the fact that all of the tension that is around us is not so much that you stake your claims in your political party, but that you draw closer to the body of Christ. Allow your kingdom agenda to supersede your political agenda. And then the economic crisis. You read Wall Street Journal, New York Times. When you read the Washington Post, it's, it's overwhelming to see 60 million people out of work. Unemployment at a historic high. The coronavirus still putting people in hospital, hospitals, still causing deaths around us. Much of our confidence can be placed in the fact of if I just protect myself, you can never provide the salvation that God can provide to you. Don't be afraid. Trust in him and him alone. You say, 
to yourself, well, well, Mike, how am I supposed to trust in him? Or, or how am I not supposed to be afraid? I, I feel depressed right now, locked in my house, been homeschooling these kids for God knows how long, and there's no camp that's open right now. I might just risk it all by sending my kids to somebody's childcare because I can't do it right now. I, I might risk it all by going to go, go somewhere just to eat because I need peace and serenity. I, I might risk it all by going somewhere and going and, and doing something because I just don't don't know what to do. I'm afraid. I'm, I'm nervous what's going to happen to my child because they, they don't know what's going to happen. They, they, they cannot figure out how to bring children back to school with the coronavirus. I'm a parent of a new baby. We got to think about the fact where we're going to send our child for child care. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm feeling that same pressure. I'm feeling the same thing because our lives have changed drastically. Nothing is normal anymore. And we're all trying to figure it out. But I want to remind you because I oftentimes have to remind myself God is not surprised, nor is he lackadaisical. He is keenly aware. And our trust in God is in God as a sovereign cure against all of our tormenting fears is the way that we ought to think. I want you to hear that. Our trust in God is a sovereign cure to all of our tormenting fears. Instead, we ought to be fully alert of the fact that we are assured that we have a safe place. Our salvation in whom we have is unwavering, an unwavering confidence and unshakable trust and an absolute courage in Christ and in him alone. And I want you to get this as well. Here's what I want you to hear right now, beloved, that I know many of you are home right now and and oftentimes being home is not the place where you feel that you are thriving. But I want you to turn to the next person next to you and say, even though that I'm home, God is with me. Tap your spouse or, or tap your dog, tap your cat, tap your, your turtle. I don't care who it is. Just turn to him and say, God, even though that I'm at home, God is still with me. This is abundantly clear when we look at our text. Because God is not only the person that we trust and, and not only the one that gives us the ability not to fear, but he is our strength in our song. Our strength is so important to understand because if we have uh, uh, our strength is important to understand. The reason why is it gives us wisdom to understand the attribute of God. That's what I want to say. The attributes of God. Whenever you're thinking about resisting temptation is merely a mental or to assert yourself exercise kind of deal. You will fail every time. If I just will myself to think good thoughts, if I, just, if I just make sure that I just breathe in a couple times or take a deep breath, squeeze one of the stress balls or look out into the clouds and imagine something great, then all things will disappear. Absolutely not. If you got bills that need to be paid, those bills will still be there. If you got some kids that are crying, they'll still be there. If you, you cannot escape reality. Salvation in God does not mean escape reality. It means trust in him. It means to be strong and to endure and have wisdom on how to move forward, knowing what you can do and what you can't do, because there is a spirit that empowers you. I didn't write it like this, but God, is, I feel like the Lord want me to communicate it in just a little different way. There is the indwelling spirit that is on the side of you that allows you, yes, to know that as chaos is going on around you, baby is crying. You don't know how you're going to get to work. 
work. You may have lost your job. Husband's driving you crazy. Wife may be going on, getting on your nerves. There's a lot going on. Tension is high in the household. You don't want to go to work because you don't know what's, what, people, what other people are doing. You don't want to go to a protest because you don't know what those folks are doing. You don't want to engage in anything and you want to... You want to escape absolutely everything because you're feeling the pressures of society. Can I tell you this morning that we all feel that but God's peace is a peace in the midst of the trial, not a peace outside of the trial. Why? Because of the spirit that's indwelling in you. Your pastor is trying to leave all of the sweets alone. Believe it or not, it's been hard. Brother trying to drop a couple pounds. I don't want to leave him alone forever, but just a little while. But every time that I go and make my son something or maybe some cereal, some Captain Crunch, whatever it is, I always normally take a bite of a cereal before I give it to him. He doesn't recognize it, and that's fine. I just try to taste it, taste it before he tastes it. But in doing so, when I know that I cannot eat anything sugary, What happens is oftentimes something says, Mike, you're not eating sweets anymore. That internal voice reminds me, and just as I have prepared my mouth to eat it, I then have to resist it. Are you tracking with me this morning? That there are things in your life right now that you oftentimes are naturally gravitating towards. It is not just desserts. It's not just sweet snacks. It's something else that you want to gravitate for. And you have built these habits in your mind that you cannot actively fight on your own or by self-willing yourself. But there is a spirit on the inside of you, an inner voice that gives you guidance and grace. Because sometimes when you want to fall or stumble into that sinful nature that depraved nature you know what happens god reminds you that you shouldn't go that way but then when you fall into that sinful nature or that depraved nature god's grace comes right there and sweeps you up and reminds you that you're a child of god that your identity and your worth and your value is inherently in him Therefore, his grace is sufficient in the weak moments. And when we face misery, when we face grief, when we face sorrow, when we are weary and our hearts are restless, God's grace is sufficient in in those moments as well. And we make God our song. We find that contentment and that peace. So he's our strength and then he's our song. And I know that there are times when we're in those deep, dark places where we find our minds racing and thinking about so many different other things or the decisions that we have to make. Some of y'all have new babies on the way and you're trying to figure out what that looks like amid all of the issues that are going on. And you're thinking to yourself, I am going to be in isolation. I am going to be alone. I don't have anybody around me. But can I tell you, if you just grab a couple words that are near and dear to your heart and you begin to say, oh, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught, thou hast taught, thou hast taught, thou hast taught, thou hast taught taught me to say. It is well when I know it's hard. 
It is well when I know I'm grieving loss. It is well when I know my marriage is struggling and miss this season. It's well when I know I just want to give up. I'm tired of racism. I'm tired of injustice. I'm tired of living paycheck to paycheck. I'm tired of not being a good parent. I'm tired of trying to make sure that I'm doing everything on, on, on point. I'm tired of having anxiety. I'm tired of dealing with depression. I'm tired of just being tired. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. You can look in the mirror, grab yourself by the collar and say, it is well with my soul. Oh, God. And the reason being is because God's song, the song of God, gives you confidence to face another day. Your wellness doesn't come because you simply have peace that you created. And then when we look at thir- verses three through four, I want you to understand, and I'm going to speed up just a little bit. I want you to understand that Isaiah directs his attention to not just himself. He's using you as a second person plural to refer to the entire community. What is this entire community re- reaping at the moment? They are reaping this joy that is drawn from the well of salvation. Hmm. Interesting. All of the water motifs in the Bible seem to have some delivering aspect. You can go to Noah and see that God wipes away, but he delivers the people. He delivers Noah and his family. You can look at the Red Sea that God keep, that God destroys the enemies, but he delivers Israel through the water. We can go to the New Testament and see that what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman is that it is this water that will provide And take care of her thirst. This water is a water that you will drink and never thirst anymore. It is this water that he wells up that will provide eternal life. In other words, whenever life leaves us thirsty, longing for more, needing hope, it is only in Christ that a wellspring draws up and never runs dry. It is only in Christ that there is a fountain filled with blood and you can draw from Emmanuel's vein. There is only in Christ that will supply every need and will come alongside of you in every depressed situation knowing that he is the one that can wash absolutely everything away. And he will do it. That's where our confidence is. And then our last thing is that we proclaim, we proclaim his salvation. We see this in verses four through six. Verses four through six, it's, it's easy to illustrate this. There's not a lot of explanation that comes. It's right here at face value. I'll break it down just a little bit. But I want you to think about ancient Near East context, original audience, Israelites. Oftentimes we forget what they are doing. These are individuals who given themselves over to idols, sacrificed their children, give themselves their possessions to false gods, trusted in earthly kings, mistreated poor in their community. And they are all of this. They've experienced hardship because of their rebellion, idol worship and unjust ways. But God, but God gives them confidence, comfort, and the ability to fearlessly proclaim his name. But when they do this, you have to think about it in relation to every other pagan God that is out there that they are having to engage. It's not like an Israelite simply comes and he professes faith and he's walking with the Lord. And next thing you know, he just gets rid of all of the idols that are around him. No, absolutely not. He struggles with whether Yahweh will be the same God as the God that I've been worshiping from the moon and the stars and the ground and the earth that give me food and and cause my wife to be fertile, that's that's cause my my fields to grow. Is, Is Yahweh going to supply like I've been praying to all of these other gods? 
Their proclamation in song is a proclamation that everything else they've been worshiping will never do what God will do. In fact, God will destroy them. We see this. And this is why God says, call upon my name without merit. In these verses, he says, call upon my name. In the context, God, they're calling upon the name of God. Why? And giving thanks to that name because he is a God that will respond and he is not mute like the other idols. Making known his deeds among the people. Why? They recall moments where God has delivered them from evil and put their enemies to shame. Christians. We need to keep proclaiming the name of Jesus, even amidst everything that's going on. But I got to ask you, whose name are you proclaiming? Is it the name of safety? Is it the name of personal salvation? Is it the name of making sure your bank account is right? Is it the name of making sure that you get everything that you need? Is it the name of panic? Is it the name of personal, uh, personal shalom? Is it the name of whatever you've created? What is it? What name do you or have you made known? Because when you look at verses five through six, uh, he reflects back. Isaiah reflects back to when Miriam took that tambourine. See, in my mind, imaginary, I felt like Miriam jumped off the front row. She jabbed that tambourine right there in Exodus 15, and she began to play the tambourine. And as she began to play the tambourine, it wasn't just one, two, three. Miriam played the tambourine and began to dance, and all the other women seeing her dancing and seeing her playing the tambourine. They grabbed their tambourines and began to play and sing unto the Lord. What is the imagery in the picture here? Is that as the people of God, as we sing and shout unto the Lord, when we do such in a way that brings glory to his name and make him known, what happens is people begin to grab things around them and follow us as we play our tambourines. Other people begin to to play their tambourines and our song becomes a greater song than the chaos around us our song becomes the shout that everybody begins to sing government officials begin to call pastors begin to call christians and ask how can we rectify and get things together we begin to make sure that our voice is heard in legislation our voice is heard in policy our voice is heard in the nation our voice is heard around the globe because christians have a peace that surpasses all understanding and this is what the people of israel can do when we look at this episode from chapter 1 to 12 judgment 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 but yet sing a song what tambourine are you using what song are you singing I want to get make this very practical you right now because some of you are saying I'm like I like to be con I like to be contemplative and I, and I respect it and I think that that is very wise and good as well but I want to challenge some of y'all to find that space in your house where you, it is soundproof, you may have to go to your car. You may be comfortable going in the backyard. But this week, I want you just to sing, but then I want you to shout. Some of y'all, I don't know how to shout. I'm not talking about you got to dance, anything like that. But I am talking about meeting God in a significant way. That this request is not singing and shouting is not a request. It is a command. A command of one's mind and his heart to be given to God. And so when this is, a, this is an indicator that you won't be afraid and are not afraid of singing. The children of Israel are not afraid of singing and shouting and saying these things amid every other thing that is going on. Why? Because they have so much confidence in God. 
that they can proclaim him. They have so much comfort in God that they can proclaim him. They know that he is their salvation, that it is powerful for them to do it in a fearless way, to give praise and thanksgiving. I'm not talking about an emotional experience. Remember when you went to the counselor for the first time and you thought to yourself, I'm not going to say anything to them. But then they begin to ask probing questions and unlock your heart and get to your grief and get to your hurt. And next thing you know, you find yourself weeping or you're crying uncontrollably and you're feeling all of these emotions and you're asking yourself, what is going on? I didn't think this would happen. But what happens is when you leave that place, a burden leaves off your shoulders. It's not anything. You have to go back into the world. You have to go back into reality. But the idea is, is that you have been so transparent. You have been so vulnerable. You have alleviated all of the stress and all of the things off your chest that what you feel now is a freedom. And God gives us that through singing and shouting. So won't you sit in your car? Won't you go to that room? And I just want you to sing your favorite song. And then right there, I just want you to say hallelujah a thousand times. But I want you to shout it. Now, I'm not talking about a whisper. I want you to yell it. If your kids got to do it with you, I want you to do it. And the reason being is, is because we too, we need a new song. Downtown church, what will our song be? In order for us to realize our, our salvation, we have to realize that we need a su- new song as well. That we will, as a church, sing together. What will that song be? Will it be one of hope? Will it be one of peace? Will it be one of unity? Will it draw all glory to the king and him alone? Will we shout to his name? And I want, to, I, want, I want to say, will we shout it on the highest mountain? Will we shout it to the poor? Will we shout it to the oppressed? Will we shout it to the hopeless? Will we shout it to the proud? Will we shout it to the arrogant? Will we shout it to children? Will we shout it to the homeless? Will we shout it to our neighbors? Will we shout it across the world so that everyone will know that, yes, there is chaos, But although that there is chaos, we have peace because one day, someday, the heavens will crack open and God will come. Emmanuel will arrive. The king will ride down. And when he does, there is a promise. Every tear will be wiped away. All of great, all of your grief will be turned into joy. All of your sorrow will be erased. All of your sadness will be turned into gladness. And he will destroy every scheme of the enemy. Beloved, what is our song? How will we sing it? And in whom will we be afraid? Will we have comfort in God's salvation? Will we have confidence in his salvation? And will we proclaim the salvation that God gives us through his name? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you, Jesus, that you are one that is so strong and mighty. That you continue to remind us that you and you alone are the only one that can change absolutely everything around us. I pray that we see that and we recognize that this week. I pray that we, we sing together, that we shout together, that we just don't crack open our Bibles to get head knowledge, but we begin to allow the Bible to transform our hearts and renew our minds in such a powerful way that we sing a new song that brings us to you in a more intimate way. For it is in Jesus' mighty name that we pray, all God's people said together, amen. Beloved, I want us to continue to worship by giving, God, gift, our, giving our gifts to God. Uh, you can see um, the text to Downtown Church right on the uh, video, and it is 73256. 
and you text downtown church, all lowercase, 73256. Let us do that and continue to worship our God. Amen.